particularly. I'm, I'm not, I don't know how to swim. My wife is a great swimmer. She's tried to teach me how to swim all the, our years, and uh, I sink like a rock. She said, honey, that is a physical impossibility. If you just relax, you'll float. And for some reason, I've got that Peter anointing that when I don't have my eyes on Jesus, I sink all the way to the bottom. So I'm not a water person, and God, in his great sense of humor, sent me to the waters of Nigeria. And we had boats that would take us as far into the jungle as we possibly could get. And then sometimes we'd have to get out of our speedboat into a dugout canoe. And they would uh, paddle me deeper into the jungle. And sometimes even that water got too shallow. And I would literally have to get out of the canoe and wade through swamp that was infested with crocodiles and the most dangerous snakes in the world called green mambas. And so it was an adventure. But I wanted to tell you a quick testimony because I'm going back to Nigeria in the month of May to celebrate a great breakthrough for a region. I think God likes to do things regionally. He's a very territorial God, and he likes to share that same kind of vision for our region with us. And so I was in an, another tribal area called... Um, uh, the Soko people, and uh, we were holding a crusade. Uh, 2,000 people came out for the crusade that Friday night, and they had built a little rickety platform with bamboo and limbs of trees that I was standing on, and I was preaching. And I was telling them uh, earnestly from my heart how much God loved them and cared for them, giving them the gospel message. And about the time midway through my message, I saw the people, the crowd of 2,000, part right down the middle, and here comes the regional high witch through the crowd, and they would always do this, like clockwork, when I would go into a new place in Nigeria, it was the civil obligation of the witch doctor, or witch of that region, to try to physically kill me, because it was their duty to prove to the community that their demons were more powerful than the God I came to tell them about that they did not know nor did they serve. So she was under a civil obligation to kill me. And they used to try their best, but I'm here with you today to prove it never succeeded. They used to try to poison me. Uh, they tried everything under the book, in the book. Uh, but, but God would always let them get exactly six feet from the toe of my shoes. And they would run into something invisible and literally bounce off of it onto, their, onto the ground, onto their backs. And I'd seen it so often that I began to expect it to happen. And so here comes this regional witch. Now, she wasn't just the witch of that village. She was the regional witch over a whole territory of about 30 to 40 mile radius from that spot. And so she was very powerful. And when she got six feet from me, she hit something invisible and was thrown backwards onto her back. It was during the rainy season in Nigeria, and there were puddles of mud and water all over. And God would often stop the rain just in time for us to hold our crusade, and the rains would start back right as we closed the meeting. And so he had done that particular night. When she went flying back, she landed in a huge, deep puddle of muddy water. 
the people around her tried to help her up. She didn't move. She was limp, and they were, were concerned. So they sent for the nurse of the only clinic in the town who came quickly, and I kept preaching because I'd seen this happen so many times. I didn't even miss a lick. I just kept preaching about the love of God until I saw the nurse bend down and check her vital signs, and the nurse stood up and loudly announced, the witch is dead. Well, then I stopped preaching because I wanted to have a talk with the Lord, and he and I had a little chat, and I said to God, I said, Lord, I came here to tell these people what a good God you are and how much you love them, and you just killed one of them. That is not a good illustration. And the Lord said to me, go down from the platform, lay hands on her, and I'll do something even greater than that. And so not knowing any better, I climbed down that rickety old platform, and I went over, bent down, and I touched the side of this witch's cheek, mud-covered cheek. And I'll, I'll tell you how to raise the dead. And I've used it more than once, and you might, it might come in handy for you someday, so write it down. It's a real easy two-step formula. How do you raise the dead? Number one, touching her cheek, I rebuked the spirit of death. That's point number one. Then I went to point number two. I then commanded life to come into her body. I didn't even get a chance to say in Jesus' name, amen, when she stood sat up in this puddle of, uh, or puddle of muddy water. She sat up coughing up muddy water, which apparently she aspirated into her lungs when, when she went in to the water. And the people then helped her to her feet, which was remarkable because not only did God demonstrate the supremacy of his power and authority over this regional witch by striking her dead, he then did the greater thing he said he would do by demonstrating his kindness, love, and benevolence by raising her from the dead. Now, what happened at that point after that was phenomenal. From that night all the way to the boundary of her spiritual jurisdiction, a 30 to 40 mile radius of that spot, all witchcraft has not been able to function to this very day. And so, God is interested, interested in using us to deliver regions and territories, and even a nation. So I'm going back to celebrate the 30-year anniversary of God setting a region free. So they're having me come. I shared this testimony at an African church in a place called Longview, Texas. And the pastor that I just met, he's all excited as I'm telling this testimony of this witch. And he raises his hand and says, I was there in that meeting and saw it with my own eyes. He was from that town of Ofog Bay, Nigeria, was in the crowd of 2,000 people as a young man. He didn't recognize me because we had both changed over 30 years in appearance, 
but he got on the phone and they've asked me to come and hold another crusade at that same spot to celebrate God setting a whole region free. And he's the one that told me the information that none of the witchcraft has been able to operate in that same radius all of these 30 years. So they're, they're wanting to celebrate that. Then they're, I'm going to get to preach in the football stadium that was the last place Reinhard Bonnke preached in Nigeria, and they're expecting a quarter million people to attend. So I look back on my history in Nigeria, and I have a lot of good, a good history there and a lot of wonderful testimonies of God raising the dead. I only talk about two dead people raised because those were documented and I like to I don't like to embellish things. I don't like to stretch things evangelistically. I like to have documentation to verify. So there were others that were raised from the dead all those years, but only two that we have documented that I talk about and that was one of the two is the witch. Amen. So Serving the Lord for eight years, raising our children on the mission field of Nigeria, we watched uh, God do incredibly powerful things about every kind of miracle you could imagine. We were seeing on a consistent basis. And then we came back from Nigeria to headquarter back in Texas where I began to train and teach um, leaders, pastors, business leaders, and government officials. Then the attack of 9-11 happened September the 9th, 2001, and the Lord had already prepared me to enter government before the attack of 9-11. Here's what he told me in prayer. He said, there's about to be a satanic venom called radicalized Islamic terrorism that is about to be released in the earth, and I need to use you to help curtail it and put boundaries on it. And of course, my response was, God, how can I do that? I'm just a preacher from East Texas. He said, but I have trained you on the mission field of Africa how to deal with regional demonic powers and principalities that have prepared you to deal with that on a global level in civil government. And so, when the attack on 9-11 happened, the FBI was running a 1-800 number on the, on the lower part of the screen as they would replay the buildings coming down in New York. And I wrote it down and I thought, Lord, I feel so prepared. I don't know how it's going to be that I can engage in this, but I really felt like God wanted to take the authority that God has given all of us to walk in to apply it to civil government. And so I wrote down the number, and I'm, I'm thinking I'm going to call in, but then what would I tell the FBI if I called? I could just hear them now. Thank you, sir. Appreciate the call. Click. Bye-bye. And the Lord said to me, just as clear, he said, don't call them. I'll have them call you. And two weeks later, our phone rings in our house, and on the caller ID, it says, U.S. Government. And, you know, those are kind of calls you don't always know what to do. And I answered, not knowing any better, and it was the FBI Counterterrorism Division. They said, Dr. Crum, uh, and he told me who he was, he said, we have heard that you lived in an Islamic nation, 
Nigeria is technically an Islamic nation, and we're looking for people to help us uh, in, in an advisory role on the subject of Islam as a culture and religion. And they invited me to come, and I did. And November the 6th, 2001, just after the attack on 9-11, I stepped through a door that was an entry point to what I thought would be a two- or three-week stint of serving as an advisor to that agency that turned into a 21-year career. So I just finished 21 years of serving our nation um, from, uh, in November of this, this past year. I thought I had contended with the strongest demons on the planet in the jungles of Nigeria, West Africa, and I really believed that I did and that they were all in Africa until I got to Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. And I said, no, they're, they're not in Africa. They're in Washington, D.C., and some of them wear suits and ties. And so the Lord decided to use me on the mountain of government as a facet of, of society that sometimes the church has felt was off limits uh, because sometimes we bought into the lie that says we have to keep the church separated from the state. That was never our founding fathers' desires. Their desire was to protect the church from inappropriate intervention by government, but they never intended the church to withdraw its salt and light from government. And so I began to serve in that capacity uh, with one of our intelligence agencies. By the way, the intelligence community of the United States, like in any nation, is by necessity a secret world. There's legitimate secrecy in keeping secrets for the purpose of national security, right? It's just, and you see it all the way throughout the Bible. So the secrets necessary to protect our nation is not inherently evil, but what it does is it creates an opportunity for darkness to operate. In a world of legitimate secrecy, the devil tries to bring illegitimate secrecy and hidden places for his works to be carried out. Does that make sense? So, I saw myself in a place that I had never met anyone that had been brought into this kind of place before. So, I began to take it seriously after two years, realizing you know, this is really an assignment from the Lord. This is not just helping out the country. But when I started serving as an advisor to the FBI, that opened a door for me to become an advisor to the White House. And so I've actually served as an advisor to the last four presidents. But don't be impressed by that because most of the time they do not take my advice. However, I've had the opportunity. In fact, after 9-11, President George W. Bush, who, by the way, signed the order bringing me into government, I came in on a presidential executive order that any president can, can invoke during a time of national crisis or emergency. They can bring on their signature people into government that have a knowledge or skill specific to the emergency. I did by having some expertise in Islam. So President Bush signed the order for me to come in. His orders to the FBI was give Don whatever he needs 
They wanted to tie me to a desk eight hours a day. I said, I don't want that. I want my liberty to go and come. I want to still minister for the Lord. They said, we're good with that. In fact, we'll even pay for a lot of that for you. And I think of worse things, the government's used taxpayer dollars to, to pay. But uh, it, it was an interesting journey in seeing the interconnection and interfacing of the kingdom of God into government. And kind of like Daniel, who was, you know, he was. He was a godly man who loved God with all of his heart. And God just decided to throw him the keys to an entire pagan culture. But, but Daniel was wise enough not to step into that role. He served three pagan kings, possibly as many as four in his lifetime, and all of them sent for him. Not one time did he go knock on the door of the king's palace and present himself as available to help. They all sent for him because of the excellent spirit upon him. And so... <clears throat> I, I, I begin to realize that I've got to get stronger in my passion for God if I'm going to endure this assignment, because this is going to be my most challenging of, of all assignments. But anyway, I began to advise the White House. In fact, uh, most of you probably are too young to remember after the attack of 9-11, uh, President George W. Bush, uh, he had to sign in for me to come in. I also had to have the signature, interestingly, of Robert Mueller, who was the director of the FBI at the time, and of the director of the CIA, George Tenet, and John Ashcroft, who was the Attorney General of the United States. All four men had to sign the document bringing me in, but I got to have great liberty uh, and, and office in my hometown. Long story short, I wrote my first advise, uh, advisory briefing to President Bush in December of that year, just a couple of months after the attack on 9-11. And that came from a conversation I had with a good friend in Washington named Frank Gaffney. Frank Gaffney had served as the Undersecretary of Defense under President Ronald Reagan. He is a wonderful fellow, and uh, he and I were sitting on a park bench in Georgetown, Washington, D.C., and he looked at me and he said, you've got to get a message to the president that Islam is not a peace-loving religion. Because George W. would always get in front of a TV camera in, with the intention of not alienating the Arab world from America, he would say, Islam is a peace-loving religion. Well, every time he would say it, every time he got in front of a camera, uh, my skin crawled because uh, if I know anything about radicalized Islam, it is anything but a peace-loving religion. The only peace they understand is the death of the infidel, which is me and you and the folks over in Israel. So I wrote a brief, and Frank said, you've got to write a brief to the president. You've got an advisory role with the FBI. Why not just write a brief to the president and see where it goes? Well, guess what? I wrote a brief describing the true agenda and objectives of radicalized Islam. And I sent it to Washington to the National Security Council of the White House. And you, you know, when you write a brief to the president... You're lucky if it even gets close to the White House, much less on the desk of the president. But frankly, God was on that briefing, and it got into the hands of President Bush. He read it and stopped saying that overnight. 
because my briefing gave the other side of what true Islam is trying to do in the world. So that was a big home run in a sense. It opened a lot more doors. But here's, here's what I'd like to talk to you about today. The authority that Jesus paid for on the cross for you and me is applicable to all parts of life and society and even into government. I'm often amazed at when young people come to an altar where I've preached in a mess or preached or ministered in a service at a church and they say to me something like this, Pastor Don, please pray for me because I feel called into serving the Lord and I think maybe I need to be a pastor. And I look at them square in the eye and I say, are you sure? Because guess what? The market's flooded. Have you ever thought of a career in government? Have you ever thought of a career with the FBI? Have you ever thought of a career in the military? And you'd be surprised how most young people have never even considered that as an option. But my argument is this. Government always goes the wrong direction when the church has withdrawn its salt and light. And so I'm believing God's going to raise up a whole new Daniel company that are going to retake that mountain for the glory of God. And I think I've just been one of the, maybe in a little bit, a pioneer in, in that happening. So God bought authority for you. He didn't just buy your salvation to get you off the road to hell and onto the road to heaven. If that's all he did, my goodness, that would certainly be more than I would have ever expected. Thank God for our salvation. But he saved you, not just keep you out of hell, but to empower you with authority to take back what the enemy has stolen. Amen? And that's that that I'd like to talk to you a little bit about today. Operational authority. Now, I'm going to throw a couple of terms out here for you to think about. Number one, I better get my notes open. Bill, I notice you don't even use notes. You wrote them and just tucked them away. I got it. I got it. You know, when I speak in places like this, I rarely say what I'm saying to you today because, frankly, most people don't have a framework to hear it. We're all about getting blessed by God, and rightly so, but God wants to do far more than just bless us. He wants to use us. Amen? All right. Couple of terms. Number one, strategic assessment. We need to become more strategic as God's people. We need to make assessment that is accurate. Spiritually, making this kind of strategic assessment means you don't just conclude by what you see on the surface. You don't just look at what's in front of the curtain to conclude and to settle into an opinion. You always got to know there's more behind the curtain than in front of it. 
And I try to tell Christians, when you're looking at the news or you're listening, what we call in my business open source media, that's anything you can tune into, watch on TV, read in a paper, or read on the internet, open source media. Most of it is greatly inaccurate, either by accident or by design. And here's a couple of other terms, misinformation and disinformation. If I tell you it's snowing elephants outside, but I really think it is, that's called misinformation because there's no malicious intent to try to deceive you on my part. But if I know good and well they're not elephants coming down with the snow outside, but I want you to believe that there are, I tell you there are, because, and that's disinformation. Disinformation is a specifically crafted deception to make you conclude a wrong conclusion. And much of what's on the open source media that we have access today is disinformation. Very carefully crafted information to make you conclude something that is not true for nefarious reasons for an agenda, hidden agenda, that the darkness is trying to perpetrate. But God needs you and me to be smarter in these days, not as gullible, not as vulnerable, and to ask questions and make strategic assessment. And I like to encourage people in prayer, and I know that many of you are intercessors, which I love. You're my favorite audience. I love to speak to intercessors. Pray in the Spirit. And if you don't pray in tongues, find out how. Get somebody to pray for you. Because praying in the Spirit is your guarantee of communicating and asking God exactly, precisely, accurately what He wants to do. The Holy Spirit knows how to pray exactly what the will of God is. Bill taught us this morning powerfully about the will of God. If you want to pray the will of God, sometimes you can't know how to pray because everything you see on this side of the curtain is unreliable to conclude an accurate assessment. So we need to be more strategic in assessing, but then we can pray in the Spirit, which by the way, is our number one encrypted communication available. I have a, a phone I carry in the back of my trunk of my work car that I can stop at any fire station or police station and plug in, and I can go on to a secure encrypted telephone call that scrambles the call, so even if it's overheard, nobody can understand it. Well, tongues is your 100% reliable encrypted communication with God that the devil cannot understand. All he hears is a scrambled tone that he cannot discern. So use tongues and use it every day. Amen? So that's part of being more uh, strategic in your assessment is praying in the Spirit because God sees everything there is to see. Amen? Then strategic assessment leads to what I call tactical advancement. Tactical advancement comes out of having strategic assessment abilities and skill sets in the Spirit so that you're listening carefully to what God is trying to show you and tell you so that you're not moving in a direction that might be close to what He wants but not exactly what He wants. I call it the shotgun versus the sniper rifle uh, picture. 
You know, sometimes we get so gung-ho, we just start shooting at anything that moves and hits nothing. That's the shotgun method. And if you shot a shotgun, you'll know it can make a lot of noise and do a lot of damage. And sometimes you never hit what you're aiming at with a shotgun. That's, that's what a lot of times we do on our best days of trying to serve the Lord. He wants to take the shotgun out of your hand and put a sniper rifle into your hand. One shot, one kill. Accurate, precise, quick, and accomplished. So that you have a sniper ability to see where the targets are, to then be able to engage them, and to fire the authority of God right on target every time. You know, today, my, my area of work has been what we call, and it's a mouthful, counterproliferation of weapons of mass destruction. <laughs> which includes nuclear, biological, chemical, neutronic, and some other systems I can't really mention. And that's been my expertise in all these years. Worked on the North Korea missile program situation. I was telling Pastor Dave and Bill today that when President Trump went to Singapore to meet with Kim Jong-un of North Korea, it was a great successful uh, peace talk. Uh, I, I did a lot of the legwork to get the president up to speed on the intelligence side of everything in North Korea so he could go to the table to negotiate with Kim Jong-un, and he did, and he did it well. So my area has always been uh, keeping the big bad weapons out of the hands of the big bad guys, right? But today, it's not nuclear weapons that are the cutting-edge weapons. It's something called directed energy weapons. That's the latest and the greatest. There are some more advanced ones besides that that I'm, that I'm not going to be able to mention to you, but I can talk about it, the, the directed energy weapons. It's like a laser beam. Uh, Israel has been running a missile defense program over there called the Iron Dome for a number of years, and we actually assisted Israel in getting that in place. It's a multi-launch rocket system, mobile unit, that can fire smaller missiles to defeat an inbound enemy rocket coming into Israel. And it's been 85% effective. That means out of a 1,000 enemy missiles and rockets coming from Hamas of, out of the Gaza or wherever, uh, the Iron Dome has been, been able to defeat uh, 850 out of, the, out of the 1,000. That means 150 got through to their target. Now, Israel has this new directed energy weapon that is 100% accurate or 99.9% .9 accurate. God gave prayer to me and you as his most powerful directed energy weapon that exists in all of creation. Where we have the power to aim the most authoritative power of God like a laser. A laser beam is nothing but light condensed to a pinpoint accurate place. God's given prayer to us to be able to take out weapon systems of the enemy even before the enemy sees it coming. That's how powerful what God's given you. And it's what costs Jesus his blood. Amen? But if you, even with directed energy weapons, if you don't know what to aim at, you could destroy a whole lot of stuff and even some, some friendlies. You know, friendly fire is a very real thing in the body of Christ. A lot of people are hurting today because they received friendly fire 
from folks inside the church, and a lot of wounded people are wandering around because of friendly fire. Not intentional, but hurtful, right? So God's given us this great authority. And uh, quickly, I, I, I teach a, a series called The Royal Dynasty, and I teach it all over the world. And it's nothing new. It's just simply a teaching on the dual role of the believer as priest and king. And I just want to share a little bit of that with you because, because there's a key, there's a secret hidden thing that if, if the enemy finds out you know about it, he's going to really have some headaches. But you know what? I'm like you. I want to wake up in the morning and the enemy wish that I'd never gotten out of bed. You know, and yeah, he is going to push back. Don't be afraid of pushback. Don't be afraid of flashback. Don't be a. Listen, if you're not getting hit by darkness, you need to reevaluate where you are. But if you're getting hit, that's a good sign you might be within range of your target. All right, so. This is 30 hours of teaching. When I do it overseas in China, it's 70 hours with translation when I go to China. But I taught this 20 years ago in Jerusalem for really my first time at a place called Sukkot Halal that is the number one house of prayer headquarters for the entire Middle East in Jerusalem, headed by my good friends Rick and Patty Ridings. And working in the government, I would go to Israel to meet with the government of Israel during the day, and I had free time at night, and Rick, when he knew I was in, in country, he would invite me over to Sukkot Halal and teach intercessors on prayer. I love to teach on prayer. I'm a, I'm a prayer. I love to pray. And so that was the first place I taught the royal dynasty and I submitted all my teaching notes, Pastor Dave, to two Messianic Hebrew scholars that were connected to Rick's work. And I said, I want you to tear apart my notes, my conclusions on this teaching. I want you to correct where, I, where I'm missing it. You know, compare it to the Hebrew, the language, the, lingui the, the, the idioms of Hebrew, all the culture. And I said, please evaluate this because I don't want to go all over the world teaching something that is not correct. They did. They came back and said, your conclusions are accurate and we agree with you. So I taught it there and several times. And one of my teaching times at in Jerusalem, there was a delegation of nine Chinese leaders from the largest underground church network of secret underground churches in China. They heard the teaching. They invited me to China. I went to China and began to teach it there. You know, the Chinese, the Asians know about dynasty better than we will ever understand dynasty. And uh, dynasty is simply a family bloodline of authority. And we're going to look at what that really means in the scripture. So I started teaching this. And in China, 
I, they always want me to teach the royal dynasty. And I say, well, you know, I know other things I can teach. And they always say, no, no, we want royal dynasty, royal dynasty. They love it. They love it because they understand it. Now, here's what Rick Riding said to me, the guy at Sukkot Halal, after I taught it there the first time, and it was said by the Chinese the first time I said it there, taught it there. They said, we understand the priestly role of the believer because the priestly has to do with our ministry to the Lord, our vertical ministry to God. The priestly was formed to minister to the Lord, and we do that through basically three things, prayer, worship, and fasting. The church of Antioch in Acts 13, verses 1 through 4, is a good example of a church that is operating under a good agenda, but they're priestly. He said, we know how to pray. We are the house of prayer. We are the the headquarters of houses of prayers throughout all the sensitive areas of the Middle East. He said, we understand the priestly. We've never considered the kingly side until you've taught us the royal dynasty. You've brought the other side of the coin. We're good at the priestly. We're lousy at the kingly because we didn't even know the kingly existed. So when I, when I taught it in China for the first time, the, the older gentleman... I'm careful how I use the word old these days because I am getting there. But he uh, had just gotten out of prison for seven years for his faith. He's the old gentleman that, that heads up the largest underground church network in China. There are five networks, and he has, has the oldest and the largest, comprised of about three million Chinese believers. And having breakfast with me on the last day of the teaching of the royal dynasty, he looks and through the translator, he says to me, this teaching is going to revolutionize the underground church of China. I was shocked that he said it, and I said, would you explain what you mean? He said, because we know how to pray. We know how to worship. We know how to be priests, but what we don't know how to do is be kingly. So, interestingly... This little introduction I'm giving you today is simply an introduction of the priestly and the kingly, and I'm going to start with Acts chapter 15. If you'll take your Bible and turn to Acts 15, we're going to begin there. We're going to jump from New Testament to Old Testament. Uh, Bill, can I task you to be my royal timekeeper? Yay, verily. I actually see a clock back there, but if, if, if 3 o'clock, if it gets to like 2 minutes till 3, start throwing things at me, okay? I only got one shot at you, so I'm going to try to give you as much as I can here in this session. All right, so Acts chapter 15, uh, the, uh, this is about the Jerusalem council, beginning with about verse 6. This is when all the leaders of the church... Uh, the first church, came together because they had a disagreement on a theological matter. We're not going to go there into that matter, but it was all the apostles, everybody gets together in Jerusalem to try to hash out this disagreement. So, so it's kind of an important meeting. But then we're going to pick up in verse 13, and here's what it says. Verse 13, Acts 15. Here we go. And after they had become silent, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, listen to me. 
Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, after this I will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up so that, watch this, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord even the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does all these things. Now, <clears throat> you don't know me personally, but I'm just an old missionary diehard. I love taking the gospel to the nations. Wouldn't have sold everything I had and taken my wife and our two little children, two and six years old, all the way to Africa to a place called the White Man's Grave because most missionaries in the olden days never came out alive. I wouldn't have done that had I not had a heart for missions. So when I heard this scripture the first time or read it, when I see it say, this is going to cause the rest of mankind to begin to seek the Lord, I understand that it is implying something that will affect the harvest of souls in the earth. And that's what we should all be about. We should want to see the gospel taken everywhere so the rest of mankind could come to know the Lord. But what is the trigger and detonator of that happening? The rebuilding of the tabernacle of David that God says he's going to rebuild. And so this is so important that it will trigger, I think, something in the end time harvest in the earth that is going to cause the rest of mankind to come to know the Lord. I'm interested in knowing what that is. This is what caused me to pursue a study on what is exactly the build, rebuilding of the tabernacle of David. Well, to understand that, you've got to look at the Old Testament prophet, the New Testament James the Apostle is quoting here. These aren't original words to James. He's quoting Amos out of the Old Testament. So if you can find it in your Bible, turn to Amos. Amos, uh, and it is there, I promise, and I'm going to have to look for it myself. But Amos chapter 9, verses 11 and 12 is where New Testament Apostle James is quoting Old Testament prophet named Amos. God speaks this originally to Amos. With me? All right. Amos chapter 9, simply two verses, verses 11 and 12. On that day I will raise up the tabernacle of David. There that is again. What is the tabernacle of David? Which has fallen down. Interesting. Now there's a lot of similarity between what James quotes and what Amos actually heard God say, but essentially it's the same thing. He says, and I will repair its damage, I will raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does all these things. So James did a pretty good job quoting Amos. But again, it's this, this mystery of what is this tabernacle of David that God says if he gets that rebuilt, it will trigger an end-time harvest of souls. 
Well, that's where I began to study what the tabernacle of David is. I had already heard some preaching about it that was good. In fact, Bickle over at IHOP, I think he taught on some of this, that the tabernacle of David is the restoring of worship back in the church. And I agree with that, but I don't think that's complete. I think it's half of the equation. So, the tabernacle of David, what is the word tabernacle here in the Hebrew, in the Amos passage? It's the Hebrew word sukkah, which is what Rick named his ministry, sukkah halal, house of praise in Jerusalem. It means a house. It can mean a primitive little hut, even as the children of Israel built temporary places of worship in the wilderness, made of tree limbs or whatever was available, that was a sukkah. Or it can be a palatial mansion. It is a house. But here in this part of the Old Testament, when it refers to the tabernacle of David, it is talking about a household of authority or a bloodline of kingliness. In fact, literally, it means a bloodline of kings. So it's not a physical structure at all. The rebuilding of the tabernacle of David has nothing to do with the physical structure. It has to do with a restored dynasty of kingly authority that was lost in the garden by the first Adam, but that was regained on the cross by the last Adam. Yeah, his name is Jesus. He was the last Adam. Don't, talk, don't call him the second Adam because that's not what the Scripture says. He was the last Adam because if you call him the second Adam, then you leave room for there to be a third and a fourth Adam. No, he was the last Adam. So what first Adam lost in the garden was restored on the cross by the last Adam. Now, I love the wording here. In verse 11, we're still in Amos chapter 9. On that day, this is God speaking authoritatively to his prophet. Under an old covenant time period, he is saying on that day, God is with his finger pointing to a future day. I believe he was pointing to that day on the cross when his own son, Jesus, would do something in a sacrifice of blood that would bring opportunity for a whole dynasty of kingly authority to be restored to God's people. On that day, he said, I will raise up the tabernacle of David. This tabernacle of David here, literally, and this is where I get the title, royal dynasty. It can mean a bloodline or a dynasty in the family of authority. So the Chinese have taught me this, and this is why they love this teaching so much. They said a true dynasty in our history in this part of the world is a true dynasty must always be kept in the family bloodline. Even properties can never be sold outside the family. Or the dynasty is no longer a pure dynasty. Everything, all the kingly authority has to pass down to children and their children. In other words, the authority is a bloodline that can never be interrupted in order to preserve a dynasty. 
It isn't it wonderful that you and I were born again into a bloodline of royal dynasty authority, right? The dynasty has to be kept in the family. It is, it is a system of king's authority, of kingly even wealth and possessions. See, I used to be hard on the guys in Tulsa as a pro, you know, the prosperity message. You know, like with everything, there's always elements of truth that sometimes get just slightly off-center. And usually by the second, third, or fourth generation of the guys, the spiritual sons that kind of take that ball and run with it, it starts veering off, right? You know, the Florida Five, you know, Bob Mumford and all the guys that did the uh, shepherding movement, it was really a pretty solid message while it was in the care of those five original men, but it was the guys that came after them that took it a little bit more and more off where it became shepherding and controlling but the essential message of it was just being accountable to somebody that's a good thing right we all need that we all need pastors we all need spiritual fathers so it's a bloodline of authority but it's also wealth and and you know the prosperity guys they're right E.W. Kenyon wrote it and a lot of uh, uh, the guys out of Tulsa you know like uh, Oh, Hagen and all those guys. They got a lot of that theology from E.W. Kenyon. Wonderful writer. Wonderful. But what happens is in the hands of flesh that has an agenda, that can get way off track really quick. When it's all about what I drive and the clothes that I wear and the watch that I have on, it's something way off is, is gone on there. But God is a prospering God. He's not the God of barely enough. He's always the God of more than enough. He wants you to have more than you need. He just doesn't want you to live for those things that he provides. Anyway, that's another rabbit to chase. But this is a dynasty. It is authority. It is possession. It is vision, family philosophy and vision. All of that that has to do with God, his character, nature, and his power is all condensed into something called his dynasty that he wants you and I to be carriers of, right? All right, so on that day, he says, I'm going to restore what first Adam lost by the last Adam, my son, who shed blood that was not just the ordinary blood of a man, but it was the royal blood of the king of all kings. And through the shedding of royal blood, I'm going to have a people who know how to walk in both the priestly and the kingly anointings. And I'm going to repair its damages. I'm going to bring the dynasty back to my original intention. You know, in government, in military, uh, there's a phrase that I learned through the years, it's commander's intent. So if you are serving a general, let's say you're a full, full bird colonel, and your boss is a general, and he gives an order, he may also tell you why he's giving that order, because you're in the upper levels of his leadership that are going to issue those orders down, 
down the chain of command to others. But he may give you more than just the order. He may share with you the why of why he's issuing the order. That's called understanding the commander's intent. We need to understand God's original intention was not just so we could have a great time in his presence, but that we could take over nations. Amen. So what first Adam lost, what did he lose? He lost his relationship with God, the Creator. But remember, he was created by the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who had this executive board meeting one day and said, let's make a man like us. Let's make him in our image. Not a God. He's going to be a man, but let's make him a senior business partner in this executive corporation called Creation. And you see it that he was giving man, Adam, a place at the boardroom of heaven in terms of authority. In fact, God created the animal kingdom, but what did he do? Adam, you come over here and name them. We created them. You don't have the power to create, but you do have the authority to give names to all these animals. And he puts him into the Garden of Eden and says, tend to the garden. And the word tend in the Hebrew literally means to cultivate for the purpose of increase and expansion. So when God's intention was not to keep the garden in a static place in its own condition to stay that way, he meant for man to manage it with the purpose of extending and expanding the garden. So I think God's intention was that as man walked in this obedient relationship with him, using this, this incredible authority, that as man multiplied and reproduced all of people everywhere would walk with God in the cool of the day in a, in a garden that had increased. I think God wanted to cover the whole earth with the garden. I think that's what he designed. I think the garden of Eden was a type of the kingdom of God. He wants, God's a God of expansion. So when he uses this word in the Hebrew to tend, it doesn't mean to, to mow the grass and water the flowers, and keep everything nice and tidy and pretty in its current stat, state. No, that's not what God meant. God said, expand this, increase this. How? By the use of authority. So, and then he said, and rebuild it as in the days of old. There's a key. God was referring to the garden in Genesis, when he said, I'm going to rebuild a tabernacle of David, I'm going to restore a fallen kingdom of royal authority. At first Adam lost, but on that day, my son is going to regain it and restore it, and I'm going to hand it right back to my ecclesia, my people. As it was in the days of old. Is it possible that through the blood of Jesus, God may have found a way to restore all things back to his people? To that level. Now the difference is, when Adam walked in that authority, there was, he was able to manage and extend without opposition. 
But guess what? You and I live in a fallen world, and we've got a devil that's seeking whom he may devour. So we have to war as we govern and rule and conduct God's business. It's a little harder when you've got an enemy as ruthless as the enemy is, but it's still possible to rule, and it's possible to extend the kingdom of God. Amen? Verse 12, that all of that, that they may possess the remnant of Edom. The remnant of Edom, Edom was one of the more aggressive people against Israel. And so, <clears throat> James the Apostle in Acts talks about that the rest of mankind may come to know the Lord. The wording is a little bit different here, that they may possess the remnant of Edom, the leftover of unbelievers and unbelieving systems in the earth. Who are the they? The they are me and you. That we might possess or take command authority over that which is not yet in compliance with God's desires. All right. So quickly, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to wind this up because of time. But I want to jump now to Revelation chapter 1 real quick. Revelation chapter 1, we're going to talk specifically about the kingly and the priestly. Now, there was a writing back in, uh, somebody wrote a book, I guess it was back in uh, the 70s, um, about kings and priests, and, and the great writer, but his, his conclusion was that many of us, or all of us, fall into one of, of two categories. We're either more priestly or more kingly. God's called, and I think his premise was that, that, uh, that people uh, who were in business or in the marketplace were more like kings, and the rest of us were like priests. But I think we're both. I really see us being as both. And so Revelation chapter 1. Here, remember, uh, the apostle John is taken up in the spirit from the Isle of Patmos. He's taken into where? The throne room of heaven. Because God needed John to get into the capital of the kingdom, which is the throne room of heaven. That's the capital of God's kingdom. He got him right smack in the middle of the throne room of God's government. And he said, to, he said, John, write down everything you hear and see. And it ends up in the back of our Bible in the book of Revelation. Do you know why? Not to confuse you with end time uh, eschatology of what's going to happen next and when this horse is going to ride and when that seal and that trumpet's going to be blown. Listen, I've got some great theological friends that are they're eschatological, but none of them have their eschatology nailed down. Not, not one of them. And so the Bible has the book of Revelation in it, not to confuse you about end-time events. It's to enlighten you on current, present conditions in the throne room of heaven. Because if you're going to act like a priest and king, you need to understand the purest form of that that is going on at this time, which is in the throne room of God. So John is watching, and he sees 24 elders very carefully seated on their own thrones around the throne of God, right? Uh, 
And then he says, I see harps in their hands. Each of the 24 elders have harps. What does that represent? Worship. They also each have golden bowls, and the Bible specifically says those are the prayers of the saints. The incense coming from those bowls are the rising prayers of saints. Not dead saints in heaven, but living saints on the earth. That's intercession, right? So here we have harps and bowls. That's worship and prayer, which is great and wonderful, but it's only half of the equation. The other two things that John notices, those same elders also have crowns of gold upon their heads and thrones they are seated upon. Those are kingly items. So here in the 24 elders represented in them are both the priestly and the kingly. Amen? And let me find my scripture here. I've worn out my Bible and uh, can't read some of my pages, so I might need some help. But anyway, John chapter 1, just jumping, I I usually like to read more ahead of scriptures, but but here we'll just start with uh, around verse 6, okay? Verse 6, and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So there is the first identifier of our function. He has made us both kings and priests. And then just a few pages over in Revelation chapter 5, essentially it says pretty much the same thing. Verse 10 says, And have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. I learned a little something in Bible college. It's called the rule of repetition, that when you see something in the Scripture more than once, uh, the same thing, it doesn't mean it's more important than anything else, but it's an emphasis. So when you see a truth restated, and we see that in these first five chapters of Revelation, we see this identification being spoken in the capital of God's government, his kingdom, as to your and my identity. We are both priests and kings. And in this part, in chapter 5, it says, and we shall reign on the earth. Now, it's interesting, this isn't talking about a future time period we will reign. It's in the present tense in the Greek. It means we will reign right now on the earth. So, In summary, and and again, 30 hours of teaching, it's impossible to do in 45 minutes or an hour. But if you get on YouTube and Google or do a search on YouTube of my name, Dr. Don Crum, you can look at some of the more extended teaching on this. You might have to listen to Chinese or Spanish because some of it was done overseas. But let me just summarize priest and king. The priestly always goes first. Judah always goes first. Everything should start with the priestly because worship is coming into majesty's presence. 
Worship. I like being a priest a lot more than I like being a king. I love to pray, I love to worship, and I can spend all day doing both and have many times. I'm more comfortable in my priestly garment. But God needs us to also put on our kingly robe sometimes. Because the priestly has to do with service. The priesthood is a servant ministry unto the Lord, right? So I minister to him day and night, night and day, as we sang this morning, in my priestly robe. I'm worshiping him. You know what that comes out of? My passion for him. So let's just say this. Passion is the foundation underneath that support both the priestly and the kingly. Because if you fall in love with God, let me tell you, you're going to worship him. And you're going to want to spend time in prayer with him. So before you start asking God for an increase of priestly and kingly anointing, why not ask him first for an increase of passion? And I tell people this, in this charismania world that we live in, is everybody loves a gift or an anointing. Why not ask God for more passion and see what happens? Because I guarantee you, if you get more passion for him, he'll trust you with more gifts. But you could end up with more gifts without more passion, and then that's when trouble can start. So ask him for more passion. I was. I spent a lot of my time with kings and pre and uh, kings and presidents of nations and governors. Sometimes I'll go and spend three days with a governor in the governor's mansion, teaching these principles. I call it. Um, my teaching on it is how to govern a nation righteously. And these presidents, they talk to each other. They say, "You need to get Brother Don over here and teach you how to rule righteously." I'll be with another president uh, in May over in Ghana uh, teaching he and his cabinet on governing, governing principles according to the Bible. Because I can talk about this stuff to kings and presidents and governors and they get it just immediately. I can talk to the same, I can talk the same teaching to a group of pastors and they kind of scratch their head because it's outside the box of religious tradition. But government officials understand chain of command authority, which is what this is. That's why the guy that had the greatest faith in all of Israel was a Roman officer of Caesar's government. He had more faith than any of them anywhere in Jerusalem, including the guys down at the temple. Because he understood chain of command. His faith was directly connected to his understanding of chain of command authority. He said, I'm a man under authority, and I follow the orders of my commanders, and my guys under me follow my orders. You don't even have to come to my house. Just issue the order here, and my servant will be healed there. And Jesus said, whoa, I've not found greater faith in all of Israel. He heals his servant without even going to his house. Government people understand command structure, and we would probably do well to learn a little bit more about that because we're in a chain of command, by the way. All right, so, so the priestly brings me into his presence. I know you love the presence of God here. 
I feel it. I know you have a heart for his presence. Somebody mentioned Catherine Kuhlman. I don't know if it was, I guess it was this morning. Was that you, Bill? Believe it or not, as a 17-year-old Southern Baptist teenager, I got to work for Catherine Kuhlman for two years. Behind the scenes, behind the curtain, every time she would come to the Dallas-Fort Worth area, which is where I lived, our, my home church called Beverly Hills Baptist Church hosted her ministry. And the men of our church would serve her and work in her crusades. And so I got to watch Catherine Kuhlman up close and personal. And as a Southern Baptist kid, I'm just starting to learn that God's still doing miracles today. How come I didn't learn about this in, in Sunday school? Well, I was amazed at the miracles that would take place. By the way, all those miracles happened in the congregation of those meetings. Not one happened on the stage. Because Catherine Kuhlman understood and taught us well, he, she would always say, God never separates his power from his presence. She had a skill and a gift of welcoming his presence. Her gift primarily was not healing at all, though everyone assumed that it was because of all the healings. No, no, no. That was a secondary gift. Her primary gift was passion for God, welcoming his presence, because she knew if she could get God in the room, he would do miracles, and he did. And I'm looking, I'm watching this as a 17-year-old, 18-year-old teenage Southern Baptist teenager, and I'm going, Lord, I'm impressed, not by the miracles, but by the passion of this woman. So at Will Rogers Auditorium in 1973, I'm backstage, and Catherine Kuhlman comes off the platform going back to her dressing room. And my pastor's son and I were standing <laughs> backstage waiting on his mother to come out from the choir. And here Catherine Kuhlman turns and looks at both of us and starts floating towards us. She wore those long chiffon dresses that looked like she floated. She's floating towards us. And the Lord says, what do you want? I didn't understand the, the law of impartation back then. But it was like God was saying, what do you want? Because I'm about to give you whatever you ask. And I thought about the healing. And I thought, wouldn't that be something to get a healing anointing? And I said, Lord, I want the passion anointing. And she prayed for me. And all I remember, I went out. And when I mean going out, I don't mean, you know, kind of being conscious of what's going on. I hit the floor of the stage, back, backstage. And I was unconscious. And when I came to, everybody in the auditorium had, had left. No telling how long I had been under there. But I was laying there, and I opened my eyes, and I was looking at something I didn't recognize. It was the bottom side of a grand piano. It was backstage, and I had apparently, when I hit the floor, I rolled under the grand piano. So my buddy, the pastor's uh, son, had to drag me out. I got up, and I had something I didn't have before. It was an anointing for passion. Passion is the most important thing 
ever. It's the greatest commandment of all commandments. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Why is it the greatest commandment? Because it's God's greatest desire. Because if he can get you and I to that place, he can trust us with a whole lot of stuff. And I was sitting in the waiting room outside a president of a nation's office about to be escorted in to meet with that president at the president's request. And I'm sitting there and I'm saying, Lord, why am I here? This was in a foreign country. I said, Lord, why am I here? Can't you afford better help? I was serious. I was, I, he put me in the throne room of earthly governors and leaders for so many years. I'm thinking, why me? I didn't go to school for this. I didn't go to college for diplomatic whatever. I, and here's what the Lord said to me. Do you all believe God can speak? Here's what he said to me. He said, you're here and only here because of your passion for me. Then I understood it. I could understand that it was a trust issue. The one you trust the most is the one you love the most. And when God sees that you love him supremely, he'll trust you with an entire nation. It's amazing. The priestly brings me into that moment of his presence. And worship and intercession becomes normal and natural as it flows out of the passion. Wow. And listen, worship, and, and I hope I don't offend someone here. I'm, I'm, this might be my only chance to speak to you, so I'm going to go for it. When we worship, God listens past the music, right past it. He listens right past our voices. And he's listening for a sound that is unique and rare to find. It is called the sound of passion. David knew it. King David knew it. He played his instrument, did it well, but God listened right past his music. He was listening for something, a chord in David's heart. So David was priest in his heart, but he came, became king by position. Only because he had been priest in his heart. Never by position, but by heart. So the priestly brings me into his presence there's intimacy in the interaction with majesty, which then moves God to put upon my life a crown of heavenly gold, a crown of delegated authority. But if I ever lose the passion, the crown will be removed. You may say, well, what are the thrones? What are the thrones representative of in the 24 elders? I think God calls us to assignment and missions. And as we engage the assignments of the Lord, he, he gives us the crown of kingly authority to engage. He wants you to be successful in what he's called you to do. And at some point, he will give you a seat of authority inside that mission 
or inside that assignment. I think God gives his people who are lovers of his crowns and thrones to do exploits for him. Amen? But it all starts with the passion that results in the priestly that then results in the kingly operationally becoming mission accomplished. Amen? All right, bear with me for another few minutes here. So that's the reason God gave me, why he insists on using me in the lives of government officials. No reason except my passion for him. Now the two balance each other, and this is important in the full teaching I do, is there's a humility in the priestly, because the priestly is a servanthood ministry unto the Lord, right? Ministering unto him, serving him, right? And then there needs to be at a time, and I can be a priest all day long with you in this room, and I can go home and be happy about it. But there needs to be a moment that we transition from the priestly into the kingly. Because it is the king's authority that does the most damage to darkness. It just does. And when you know who you are in Christ as both priest and king, here's the way God does it. He will create an atmosphere of authority around you. Like right here. That might be why the witches couldn't get closer than six feet. They might have been running into that bubble of authority. I don't know. He will create an atmosphere of authority because you believe in who he says you are as priest and king. And everywhere you go, you will create disturbance to darkness just because you showed up. It, it happens. God's called us to create disturbance to darkness. But in order to create that disturbance, we have to know how to be kings when we need to be. You know, um, my, my, uh, my view of what a good prayer meeting is, and I know you guys have great prayer meetings here. I've heard about them. To me, a good prayer meeting always begins with the priestly and then crescendos into a moment of the kingly to pull down strongholds and to deal with darkness and then to go back into the priestly. So a good prayer meeting starts with the priestly, crescendos into a kingly moment of authoritative decree and then goes right back and ends in the priestly again. It's powerful. Amen. So one testimony, uh, or maybe two. You, you had two or three after you said you were closing. So, <laughs> yeah. uh, On the government side of things, because what God has always done with the government thing for me is he's incorporated and interfaced the kingdom of God and the anointing of the Holy Spirit together with governmental function. I had a very good friend, still have a good friend, have breakfast with him every now and then. He's a retired FBI official. He and I worked together for 17 years on a lot of different cases. And uh, on his final day 
at his job. He did a 20-year career with the FBI. I'm at the FBI office. I'm sitting across the table saying goodbye to him. And he looks at me. He, he's a good, solid Catholic guy, but he has a measure of real relationship with the Lord. And he looked at me and he said, Don, thank you for all you've done for the nation. And he said, I want to tell you something I couldn't say before, but now that I'm retired, I can say it. He said, the FBI recognizes that you operate in an authority that we do not have, nor do we understand. Amen. Which summed it all up for me, that God had given me this assignment because he knew I understood the issue of the passion that could cause him to trust me with authority in global matters. So one day in 2003, I'm in Washington and I'm briefing, and I'm under a non-disclosure agreement on this particular thing that I can't mention the name of this uh, U.S. government official, though if I did mention it, uh, you would know immediately who it was. You'd recognize his name. So I was involved with a situation in Iraq. This was back during the war in Iraq. And I was there to brief him on a situation in Iraq. And I'd briefed him several times earlier on on counterterrorism matters. And uh, he knew I was a strong Christian. And he would always say this to me. After we finished the briefing, he would always look at me and say, Don, now that we got that out of the way, let's move to more important things. Did God tell you to tell me anything today? Which was always hilarious to me because every time we would brief, it was always on a big deal, important matter. And he would, he would refer to it as, that's not that important, but this, what God may have given you to say to me is. And I said, yes, sir. And I, now get the picture. We're in this beautiful office High secure area, Capitol Hill police are walking bomb sniffing dogs up and down the hallway. Secret service guys are everywhere. The door to his office is open. Usually it would be closed when I would meet with him. It was open for some reason that day. And miraculously, no one came in the whole time. I met with him for 15 minutes, which is an eternity in that place. No one came in the whole time. So I'm sitting there across from his desk. He's behind his desk. He says, Don, did God give you anything to tell me today? And I said, sir, he did, as a matter of fact. He said, today is your day to receive your third kingly anointing. And then I went into a little Sunday school lesson on King David, who received three king's anointings in his lifetime. First one, you remember, was in the house of Jesse, his father, when the prophet Samuel came to anoint him to become the next king of Israel. That was David's first kingly anointing. Then he became king of Judah and received his second kingly anointing. And then finally, becoming king over all of Israel, he had to receive a third kingly anointing. Both the office of priest and king in the Old Testament all required an anointing of oil. Sometimes the prophets were anointed, but not all of them. But all priests and kings had to receive an anointing that set them into their position. I simply said to this gentleman, I said, 
I believe God's told me that today he wants to release your third kingly anointing to you. And as I was just about to talk more about what the kingly anointing was, he shoved his chair back from his desk like he was angry. In fact, it scared me. And he stood up and shouted loudly, Let me have it! Now, seriously, at that point, I was about to hit the floor because I knew there were going to be Secret Service agents with MP5 machine guns that were going to come in, having just heard him say with a loud voice, Let me have it! Not good. Not there. Not in that place. So my heart is just beating out of my chest. He's as he stood up and he says, let me have it, he also puts his hands in the air and he turns his face to the ceiling of that beautiful office and closes his eyes waiting for God to give him the third king's anointing. I was shocked. I stood up quietly, respectfully, and I moved quietly and slowly over to where he was standing behind his desk now, I still remember his suit and the color of tie he was wearing that day, beautiful blue tie. I just gently laid my hand over his tie. And you know, when I've always been in those moments when you just want to pray a good prayer, nothing came out. <laughs> and I just got flustered. And so I just shouted, Lord, let him have it! Again, about to hit the floor, thinking the Secret Service is bound to have heard that time. The power of God fell upon him. And fortunately, his chair was right behind him, and he fell into his chair. With his hands still lifted, his eyes still closed, and face toward heaven. And I'm standing there waiting for him to bring his hands down and say goodbye because I looked at my watch and I had other places I need to be. And I waited for five, six, seven minutes and he didn't move and no one ever came through the door. I literally watched the king's anointing pouring upon him. Now, Finally, I had to excuse myself. I tiptoed to the door of his office, and I slowly closed it behind me as I went on to my next appointment, leaving him in the presence of majesty. It was a king in the presence of the king of all kings. Three weeks later, I had to have a follow-up briefing with him on the same matter I briefed him on about Iraq on that day, he was giving a speech on Veterans Day at the Kansas City, Missouri Conference or Convention Center. And they, made, uh, they found a room backstage. Uh, they, the security guys uh, got a little small room for me to have a quick follow-up briefing with him. So when he came off the platform, they escorted him right backstage to that room where I was sitting and waiting. And I gave him a little five-minute follow-up. We both, with our security details together, we both were escorted out to a secure parking area where his guys were taking him to his uh, vehicle. 
I got to be careful here because I'm, I'm not, I'm really not supposed to even hint to who this guy is. But I had another, my, my guy was taking me to our vehicle. We were parked 50 to 60 feet away from each other. As, as I was about to get into our vehicle, I hear somebody yelling my name, Don, Don. And I'm, I can't believe because nobody knows me there. And I look over at his car, and it's him yelling my name across this parking lot. And the Secret Service guys were trying to get him in the back seat. You know, they're kind of picky about that. They want to get him in the security of the vehicle. I wave at him, and I said, yes, sir. We're, ha we're yelling at each other across this parking lot. He said, the king's anointing that I received three weeks ago in Washington, he said, I've never been the same. He said, and he's, you should have seen the, the security guys. They're just about to push him into the car. But he wants to say this to me. It's important to him to profess this. He says, I've gotten more done in government in the last three weeks than in my entire political career. And I just said, God bless you, sir. And finally they did. They just kind of shoved him right into the back seat. But every time I saw him after that, usually it was in Washington, he always referred to that day. Not the day on the parking lot, the day he received the third kingly anointing. He would say to me, Don, remember what happened in my office? I said, yes, sir. He said, wasn't that wonderful? I said, yes, sir, it was. He's referred to it every time I've seen him since that time. So you know what? My suggestion, fall in love with Jesus to the degree that he'll trust you with a whole nation. Daniel was trusted one king said he thought of giving him authority over the entire kingdom. Wow. Ask him for more passion. Because that's the secret. That's the key. One last story. I promise this is the last one. A colleague and I, a guy named another Bill, not this Bill, but another Bill. We, we have a meeting scheduled in Washington with a colonel, an army colonel in the intelligence part of the army. We go to this very highly secure area just in Washington. That's all I can say. But it's so secure from the time you park in the public parking area to the time you get inside this colonel's building where his office is, you go through five security checkpoints. And at each one, you bring out your credential and present it to an army officer or sergeant or lieutenant, whoever is manning that checkpoint and they recheck your credentials five times before you even get into the building so we're doing the routine and bill's got his wallet thing you know that we carry with the the id and all that well the last checkpoint right outside the building this was the last one before we got inside the building this sergeant at this desk with a computer, he takes Bill's credential, he runs it in the computer, hands it back to Bill. I give him mine, and he's like,
piddling around on the computer, and I looked at him. I said, Sergeant, is there a problem? He said, no. He said, we just don't see this very often. I said, what? I had no idea what he was talking about. He points to my credential, and there's a little holographic seal, and he says, this has embedded information about your clearance, your your situation, your credentials. He said, we just don't normally see that. I'm just sort of enthralled in looking at this and seeing it on the computer. And actually, he was able to access stuff embedded in that little seal, about a quarter inch wide. He handed it back to me, and the whole, here's what the Lord said to me. He said, my children have an identity of credentials of the highest order in all of creation. And you have authority and privileges embedded in your identity that you may not even know you have. <laughs> so I encourage you, fall in love with God. Don't ask Him for more gifts. Don't even ask Him for more anointing. Ask Him for more passion. I guarantee you He'll give you more gifts and more anointing. Amen. Could we, can you guys put that music on that I sent over? I'd like to pray for you. I, I, we're not going to have time to pray individually for you, but may I just pray a corporate prayer over you today? Thank you, Lord. Hallelujah. In those waiting rooms outside the rooms of the presidents of nations, I would always have this feeling that would come over me moments before they would escort me into the presence of a president. I called it anticipation of majesty. It's just kind of a fluttering, it's not really fear, but it's an awareness that I'm about to enter a high-level presence of majesty. And I think in the presence of God, we should be that moved and more. Coming into His presence, it ought to be a big deal to us. We ought to be moved by it. And not just giddy and thrilled because, oh, the presence of God is here. No, be moved by the fact that the Creator of all things has actually come into your presence and bringing you into His so, Father, we do worship your majesty, sir. Father, look at you. Just look at you today. Clothed in majesty and beauty and holiness and perfection. Just look at you. We've never seen anyone like you before. And you've come in the room with us. Could we just quietly stand in His presence right now? Go ahead and raise that volume a little bit more. You know, when I was telling the testimony about that U.S. government official just saying and shouting, let me have it, it was indicative of a man who was desperate, hungry. And I believe God is looking for a similar heart in us today that would be that desperate. Let me have it. 
I don't need a Sunday school lesson about it. I need it. And I'm asking you to let someone have it. But I pray that passion would be the first order of the day. I pray for that Mary of Bethany anointing to come down out of an open heaven over us. That whatever that woman had named Mary, that drew Jesus back to Bethany over and over again. That somehow you would give us a Mary of Bethany portion today that would cause us to break a seal of our most valuable affection to lavish upon you. Break a seal today for the Lord of the most powerful affections of your life. Break the seal and pour every drop upon the King of all kings. Whew. Holy Spirit, come create that love. According to Romans 5, verse 5, we have the love of God shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit given to us. Father, we cannot just try to love you more. We need an anointing of the Holy Ghost to love you more. Invoke it by the power of your Holy Spirit in us. Create in us the heart that you could flood passion into a heart that has been broken open. The greatest thing that any of us could ever do would be to love you with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. I pray for an anointing of passion. Whew. Receive it right now. Receive it. And then, Lord, on top of that foundation, I pray for the increase of the priestly anointing. I pray that as the priest of old, never they never washed the garments of the priest. They simply re-oiled them to refresh them. Re-oil our priestly garments today, Lord. Holy Spirit, become the oil that flows into our priestly function that would cause us to become greater members of the priesthood that ministers to you effectively and powerfully. My Lord. The priest called the sons of Zadok, that special part of the priesthood that only ministered to the Lord, not to the people in the outer court, but it was the sons of Zadok that were designated to only minister to the king of all kings. Give us a sons of Zadok anointing today that know how to touch your heart and minister to you. Through worship, prayer, and fasting. And then, Lord, finally, I pray for that King's anointing that is balanced by the humility of the priestly, never becoming arrogant, never becoming forceful or proud. But as the elders were off their thrones, onto their faces, casting their crowns before you, God, may you bestow upon us a crown that would become as a cast-down crown because of how we carry it with humility.
But Lord, I pray that you let your people have their next anointing of a kingly anointing today. To get done in the earth and in our mission and assignments with great success everything you want to accomplish in us and through us. And I also pray for this house, Heartland Church, that I believe is a governmental house. That God, you would increase the passion here over the corporate body of this church. That passion would become the order of the day. Falling deeper in love with Jesus. Bring this house into deeper passion. And I pray for the trust of an increase of the priestly and the kingly anointings to come upon this house for the region, for the territory, and even for the nation. I hear the Lord say that out of Iowa, there is a new surge of authority that is about to be able to impact Washington, D.C. and the United States government on new levels. That out of the most unexpected places, God is going to become the most extraordinary in His authority and power. And I say that God has chosen the state of Iowa to become the next touch point between heaven and earth that can even alter and adjust the course of the United States of America. That you would use this governor, this state, to bring a kingdom order into Washington on Capitol Hill and beyond. But I ask, Lord, that the governmental will increase upon this house and upon Pastor Dave and the team here, Lord, God, this house is destined to change nations. Thank you, Lord. So God bless you today. May you continue to receive from the Lord. Don't walk out of here and go, well, that was, I guess that was it. No, no, this is going to be a continual anointing that is going to pour out upon you for the rest of this day and probably for the next few days to come. Now let me tell you, this is my disclaimer when you receive an increase of kingly authority, you're going to initially uh, experience some pushback of darkness because the enemy's hopes is to intimidate you to back off when you've made an advancement. But let me tell you, if you just keep pressing into God, keep ministering to Him and the priestly, <clears throat> the enemy will get the message that you're not going to back off nor are you going to back down. So don't be intimidated by a little bit of pushback in fact, if you don't get any, that might be a bigger concern. But you might get a little pushback. But God bless you. And please continue to believe for the destiny of our nation. Our best days as a nation are still ahead of us and not behind us. God bless. Thank you so much. Yeah. Don, there's a a word that Iowa, it's been released over Iowa on several occasions about I-I-O-W-A, Iowa Intercessors Over White House Affairs. And uh, so we need to own that. We need to step into that. And I think this, this element of the kingly anointing is what we need to really lay into. 
you know, even as Don was talking about how we know how to be priests, but we need to, we need to begin to ask God to release that kingly understanding uh, because there, there's things on our ID card that we don't realize are embedded in that. And if we don't realize it, we won't access it. We won't take advantage of what God has already extended to us. And so let's, let's make this a matter of, of asking the Lord for a spirit of wisdom and revelation in this regard. Don, thank you so much. That was so rich, so good.